0: Well, good morning and welcome, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you're here. Merry Christmas to you. Yes, excited to be able to celebrate Christmas together today. We have a lot of fun things going on. So we (laughs) want to invite you to stand, and we will worship together, starting out singing Angels We Have Heard on High. Glory.
1: joyous strains prolong what the glad song's
0: Jesus this morning together and now at this point we'd like to invite you to enjoy a wonderful kids nativity play so you may be seated this is a fully run fully produced kids production kids being the angels and the shepherds and Mary and spotlight and all the fun things that we're gonna do today so we now present to you a kids nativity play a big thanks to Heather and to Emmy and to Tyler and the other adults who have prepared this.
2: We hope you enjoy.
0: The
3: story of Jesus. So, there we go. The story of Jesus. During the time, shone around the shepherds and they were terrified.
4: Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has... A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger.
3: A king? In a feeding trough? That was no place for a king. All of a sudden, a whole army of angels appeared, praising God and saying,
4: Glory to God in the highest, And on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests.
3: So the shepherds went straight to After traveling, they finally made it to the town of Bethlehem. They couldn't believe the king of all kings was in a small feeding trough. The wise men kneel before the king and present their gifts. Everyone who heard about Jesus was surprised and amazed. Mary thought about everything that was happening and tried to understand it. Everyone went out and he told others
0: Applause for our kids. Yes.
5: John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The fourth week of Advent is the week of love. This verse tells us that Jesus came because God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to be born at Christmas and to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. God's love for us is one of the main themes the Apostle John wrote about in the Bible. He tells us in another verse that the greatest love anyone can have is to give their life for others, John fifteen thirteen. He also tells us we are to love one another because love comes from God, 1 John 4, 7. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for sin who died and rose again to offer new life for all who believe. Help us to believe that Jesus came to save us from sin, and help us to show your love to one another. Amen. Thank you. Would you please rise for the reading of God's word? So the reading for today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Please be seated. Whoops. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Reader of God's Word and holder of the stars. That's awesome. Uh, that play was wonderful. Um, it's actually the text we're looking at today. I wasn't quite sure. I, I didn't really realize that was going to happen, so uh, you'll get it twice today. Uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Merry Christmas. Um, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here have been working our way through Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and we are uh, starting Luke chapter 2 right now. This is our Advent series, which uh, we'll wrap up in the next couple of times that we're together, which includes Christmas Eve. We're going to look at a little bit more in chapter 2 of Luke. Christmas Eve, which is Thursday night, um, actually Thursday afternoon into Thursday night. Uh, This year we're going to have three services. We, We normally have... Seven or 800 people here on Christmas Eve. Uh, obviously, we're not gonna have anywhere near that many because of the uh, virus, and, but also we don't have uh, near the capacity because of the virus, and so we realized that we probably needed to add a service. And so our services are gonna be 3, 4.30, and 6 on Christmas Eve, 3 in the afternoon, 4.30 afternoon, and 6 in the evening. And we do need you to register for these services. We haven't been doing that on Sunday morning, but we would like you to register uh, if you plan to come Christmas Eve and if you're planning on bringing guests, lots of guests come on that night too. And and so we need you to register to make sure that we're not uh, going to end up in the midst of, of everything that's going on. Uh, also, just wanted to mention, yesterday we had the Affordable Christmas over at Alhambra, and it was just really, again, another... A wonderful event, uh, something that's uh, appreciated and desperately needed in that area. Uh, We came through again as a congregation with uh, just a multitude of gifts for them uh, and people serving over there. So I wanted to mention that and thank you. Uh, Tyler mentioned last week in his—that would be Tyler James, the guy with the mustache—mentioned last week in his message how generous this congregation is, and it is true, and Alhambra appreciates that. Uh, also, want to mention that we are continuing with our Advent offering now, and we have been. Um, receiving financial gifts for the Advent offering already and that's been encouraging as well. We appreciate all that you're giving uh, during this season. So all of that just as a way of reminder for what's coming up the next uh, few weeks. Uh, We're going to kind of wrap up. Uh, We're going to do something a little different for Advent. On the 27th we're actually going to have one last sort of mega sermon on the 27th. So we're going to continue that idea of of uh, each sermon being something that's mega. Today is mega which is great joy, and we're going to be looking at that. So let me pray, and we'll get into uh, the text today that Ben just read for us. Uh, Lord God, we're grateful, and we're thankful for all that you uh, do for us and what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus. We celebrate his birth during this season, but we are also reminded that his birth had a purpose, that he came with a mission And he completed that mission for us because of your love for us. And so we thank you for that. Uh, I just pray that we would be able to live in gratitude for that. Uh, It's been a very difficult year. It doesn't look like uh, the difficulties are going to let up anytime soon. And so we just pray that uh, we would be a people that is grateful for what you have done for us. And let us be reminded of that during this Advent season. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we're looking at Luke 1 and 2. Uh, all of the pregnancy backstories, which are magnificent in Luke, he offers so much uh, detail that we don't necessarily find in other places. Well, those backstories are now complete. And today, with verses 1 through 14, we see that Jesus is born. Uh, Christmas Eve on Thursday, message number 5 will be about the shepherds and Mary's response to all of uh, and is really about the response that you and I should have as well. But first, today we look at the conditions under which our Lord is born as a human. And how the shepherds got involved in the first place. And, and as you read through it, I, I've just noticed over the years that as we read scripture, it can become somewhat routine. Especially if you read things over and over. Um And this appears routine as well. Even if you're not around church that much, you kind of know this story because it's just embedded in culture so much. Even in a culture that doesn't necessarily embrace faith as it used to, this story is still embedded in culture. You see it it on greeting cards. Uh, And so it becomes somewhat routine to us. But as usual, God's word offers a lot for us today to be able to chew on. And not just chew on, but also embrace and apply. So if you have your Bibles, I will go back through this passage that Luke read. I'm sorry, that Luke wrote, but Ben read. <laughs> um, we're going to look at the first three verses uh, first. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that, in, that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So as you might imagine, I find a bunch of items in these three verses that we need to unpack and understand and be familiar with for good contextual interpretation and understanding of what's going on. So uh, here we go. Let's first talk about this guy, Caesar Augustus. Who, Who is this guy? Well, he's the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus was born. And it was a vast empire at that time. You you heard what Luke said that this uh, idea of registration went out for the, for the Roman Empire. They felt, that it was in fact, the entire world. And so, um, even though there were other parts of the world that weren't part of the empire, they felt that that was essentially the whole world. Uh, Augustus's real name is Octavius. He lived from 63. B.C. to 14 A.D., and he actually reigned for 45 years from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. Uh, My mic is cutting in and out. Are we doing something? Okay, all right. All right, so sorry about that distraction. Um, We've been chasing sound bugs all morning this morning for whatever reason, so I'm not sure exactly what's going on. We apologize for that. So uh, Octavius was renamed Augustus after he came in, as emperor and sort of calmed down the empire. There, there were, was lots of violence and uprisings in the empire prior to his reign. And so his name got changed to Augustus and Octavius had a lot to do with that because the name Augustus literally means exalted one. So he, he had a lot of humility, um, this guy. He was also the heir to Julius Caesar, so he came right after Julius Caesar. Yeah, you've, maybe you haven't heard of Augustus, but you've certainly heard of, of, of Julius Caesar. Uh, and, and so maybe you've heard more of, of Julius, but Augustus was actually a better emperor than, than uh, Julius was. Uh, he was a great, he was, some people consider him the greatest emperor in the history of the Roman Empire. Now, he was not great in terms of character, we need to understand that. Uh, but he was great in his accomplishments for his people and for the empire. Augustus was the one responsible for that thing known as the Pacto, which is the peace in Rome. Uh, he, he was the one who uh, thoroughly defeated all of the enemies of Rome, got things to be able to calm down uh, so that they could develop a, a, a society that had commerce and, and government and all of that. So Um, He was responsible for this massive expansion of commerce in the empire. He was also responsible for the strongest governmental machine ever created in the world up until that time. And he was the first emperor of Rome to also be called Lord and Savior, exalted one. And this is important in this story for context. He was the first one known as Lord and Savior as the emperor of Rome. So that's Augustus. So the next question is, what does it mean to be registered? Well, it's a census. It's a census, and the purpose of the census is to register young men for the military and to figure out who and how to tax the people. So it's about money, and it's about military might. And this would be why the Jews over the years came to resent the registration as a distasteful, Uh, symbol of Roman uh, oppression. They didn't like the excessive taxes uh, for a government that really did them no good. You've maybe heard of taxation without representation. That was not original here in the 13 colonies. That was also true in the Roman Empire as well. And they also really, the the Jewish people really weren't on board with uh, this perception that Rome had of all the warmongering. And because this registration was for all of the Roman Empire, in other words, their version of the known world, this would have taken two to three years to accomplish this registration, and they would do one every 10 to 14 years. As you read history, you see it's done every 10 years, it's done every 12 years, it's done every 14 years, it just depends. History indicates, though not clearly, but it does indicate that this guy Quirinius was governor of this area where Jesus was born, this Syrian area, very small area of the Roman Empire, he was governor there twice, once from around 6 B.C. to 4 B.C., and then he was removed, and then he was put back in as governor again from 6 A.D. to 10 A.D., and so this census, as we understand it from history, started in Rome around 6 or 7 B.C., and then it finally made its way to this yeah, this series, uh, in 5 or 4 BC. So let me just say for some of us, this blows apart the myth that Jesus was born in year zero. He wasn't. Uh, he was born actually before year zero. Somebody got that wrong. But we need to remember that when exactly he was born doesn't change who he is. And then that last question, what does it mean that each is to go to his own uh, or her own town? Well, it means you need to go to register to the town where your people are from, uh, where your people originated. And both Mary and Joseph are descendants of King David, who is from Bethlehem. That's where David is from. And from Nazareth to Bethlehem, so they had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's a somewhat rugged through the mountains trip of about 70 miles, on foot, nine months pregnant. So think about that. This is, and she's 14 years old, maybe 15. This is, this is a tough person. I'm sure Joseph was tough as well. But she's really, really tough. Look at verses 4 through 7. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That, that word betrothed there specifically uh, and explicitly means the one to whom you marry. So they still aren't actually married yet. They're, they're actually engaged. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Verse 4, Tyler Thompson has mentioned this before. I'll mention it again to just clear up some confusion. The idea of they went up. Um, In our context, when we hear of going up to some place it means we're going north. And if we go down someplace, it means, so we go down to Tucson, we go up to Flagstaff. That's what it means. But in their context, it had to do with elevation. So you could actually go up by going south, which is what they did. They went from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, which was south, but they went up because Bethlehem was actually higher than Nazareth. And so that's it's direction it's not directional it's elevational and the city of david why the city of why do they call it the city of david well that's first samuel 16 david was anointed king there in bethlehem and bethlehem the word bethlehem in hebrew literally means house of bread if you know anything about the old testament you know that that's significant it's manna it's provision it's god as deliverer this is a, a, a lofty name that bethlehem has And verse 5, Mary is his betrothed. So again, they're still not officially married. But their engagement in that context is very different. Their engagement in that context still required formal divorce papers for them to be able to separate. Here, if we're engaged, you know, you may or may not give the ring back and it's pretty much over with. Or you ask for the ring back, whatever. And it's pretty much over with. They would have to file formal papers to be able to break up their engagement but also in their context, it meant that they still had not had sexual contact with each other. They had not consummated their relationship. So Joseph is still living in that weird uh, sort of liminal space where people are talking about this scandal that Mary's pregnant. And, and he's like, well, I got a story about that. You're not going to believe it, but I do have a story about that. Okay. In verse 6, they're traveling close to the due date. You know how you're not supposed to fly after 35 weeks? I don't know if you're supposed to walk 70 miles after 35 weeks either. And, and then that this, this idea of firstborn there. Uh, in the Greek, that literally means that there were other children that came. So it's not firstborn and that was the only one. It's that, that It confirms that Mary had other children. And we also see this in Scripture. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Um, Jesus had brothers, and those brothers are named, Jude and James are among them, and he also had sisters, the sisters don't get named, but he does have brothers, well, half-brothers and sisters, Uh, and and they wrapped Jesus in these swaddling cloths, this is interesting too, Um, these were strips of cloth that were were used to secure the baby and keep it warm, and they tightly wrapped the baby, specifically with the baby's arms straight down. They wanted, okay, understand, this is before stuff like science, okay? They wanted to keep the the baby's arms straight the first couple of months because they really believed that if they didn't do that with the swatting cloths, their arms would always be like this and never be able to extend. So they would keep them like this in their swaddling cloths. And before any of you uh, parents get sort of upset about this terrible indignity that they did to their babies back in the first century, I want you to think back to what you did with your firstborn and if we had some videos of what you used to do with your maybe you didn't do the swaddling cloth thing, but you did some other crazy stuff. And, of course, by the second, third, and fourth born, you know, it doesn't matter. You're, you're letting them do whatever they want. But that first born, I'm telling you, you're, you're doing some crazy stuff as, as well. Um, and then it says there is no place for them at the inn. Uh, you know, that's a current uh, colloquialism that you and I all use uh, to indicate when we're not welcome somewhere. It's a way of saying we're not welcome. I mean, here you go. Here's my office reference for today's sermon. It, even Michael Scott used it when he was going to Pam and Jim's wedding up in Niagara and he did not make a reservation at the hotel and they didn't have a place for him to say. He literally said, well, I guess there's no place, uh, there's no room at the inn for me. It's come to mean inhospitable. No place at the inn, no room at the inn. It, it means inhospitable. And that's a problem for us because then we over on this supposed innkeeper and so many of us have this picture of this gruff innkeeper who saw this woman coming in about ready to give birth and Joseph and he sent them away and it's awful. You got to remember that there was, there was a census in town and, and there was no such gruff innkeeper. There were literally hundreds of people maybe thousands of people coming to this tiny, tiny little city of Bethlehem to register and, and looking for a place to stay. There's lots of Davidic people out there in the first century. And so this one inn that was in town was just overrun. And and this idea that it was a barn. We, we don't even know if the inn had a barn, and if he did have a barn, it's not necessarily where they went. All the scholars say that, in fact, the most likely and least romantic place were... Um, Joseph and Mary ended up having their baby was in a cave because it was common to keep animals, herds, in caves back then. And thus the manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. So they were probably in a cave with sheep, with this feeding trough, when, when Jesus, the Lord, the Savior and the creator of this universe, was born So here's what we really need to understand. The King, the Messiah, the Son of God was not born in an important city such as Jerusalem or Rome or Babylon. The miracle of Jesus' birth, the Son of God being born as a human, took place in this quiet quarter for animals in a tiny, obscure village in Judea. You and I constantly struggle with God's idea of what great is. We, we tend to project our idea of what great should be on God and then are disappointed with God's idea of great or, or we're confused by it or there's great dissonance with that. If we were God, Jesus would have been born in New York or Paris or Rio de Janeiro or Tokyo or Mexico City, certainly not in Yuma, which is a kind of the uh, equivalent. If you're from Yuma, that's, uh, you know, I should have said Casa Grande, I know. Okay, so. so now I got two cities mad at me. All right. Eight and nine. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, which is what shepherds do. They keep watch. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So the first thing I got out of this passage, unfortunately, is, is that I want to declare that people do actually work on Christmas Day. I just want to let you know that, that people are working on Christmas Day, even in the first uh, century. And the geography right around Bethlehem, from what I understand, I've never been there, but what I understand, it's perfect for grazing these sheep, that gentle, grassy, Hills, I mean, it's prime grazing land. It's the sheep's version of the provision coffee shop. And verse 9, an angel appears. And once again, the angel causes fear to be the reaction. Fear. I'd love to have an angel appear to me, man. That would be great. Could we test that hypothesis? I'd love to test that on you, not on me. Because the sight of that would, would change our mind immediately about God's sovereignty, about God's glory, about God's power, about God's just bigness, if I'm just searching for a word. And this is just an angel, too. It's not even God. But the glory of God is surrounding there as well. And then you look at verses 10 through So verse 10, the angels bring good news of great joy. Good news is the word in the Greek from which we get the idea of gospel, of gospel. That's why we talk about the gospel of Jesus, good news. Verse 11, uh, the significance of David's anointing and Jesus' birth in this minor town of Bethlehem. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and also the Davidic line from which the Messiah comes from. Uh, David is the most celebrated, really the most sinful person in the Old Testament, but the most celebrated, and Jesus, the Savior, all concentrated in this little town of Bethlehem. I hope we get that. Again, there's that humility, that, uh, that humble nature of God. In verse 11, it says, a Savior who is Christ... The Lord, we shouldn't miss this. There are three names or names that Jesus is given in this verse by the angel. Savior. This, is, this word is used only one other time in the Gospels, and we've already seen it in John chapter 4. It was used by the people in Sychar, the town where the Samaritan woman was from, when, they said, when it was said that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Savior literally means the one who delivers from danger or treachery. You see, our sin is treacherous, and it causes us great danger, and that's why Jesus had to come. That's why we uh, are grateful and we celebrate the salvation that he gives us. It's, it's the New Testament version of what the Lord did, Yahweh did, for his people when he brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them, he saved them from treachery and from danger. We, we need a savior just like the Israelites needed a savior in Egypt. Then there's that word Christ. The word Christ literally means anointed one or could be interpreted as Messiah. It's the divine sovereign one with all authority to rule. It's the word from which we could say Jesus is king. And then the word Lord. This is the one to whom we submit everything. And not just our stuff, but us as well. And this is the one that we struggle with the most. Lord and Savior. We like that Savior part, but the Lord part where it means we have to submit everything to him as well. That's, that's what, We love the salvation, but not the submission. But this is also quite subversive because by the time Jesus is born, Augustus, was commonly being referred to as Lord and Savior, because he was seen as a god. He was seen as divine, with the powers of salvation. Therefore, he is Lord in the Roman Empire. And Jesus being referred to as Lord and Savior is an act of subversion. Um, uh, it, it's not an in-your-face. No, that Jesus Caesar that he trumps the emperor. We need to understand that no Caesar, no governor, no president has ever been divine, nor has he or she been Lord. It is Jesus. And those last two verses, 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is. He is pleased. Uh, That would be a sight. I mean, we even kind of saw it in the play here. There's one angel and then suddenly there's this host. What does host mean? Host is a term that meant a large army encampment. A large army encampment. So there were literally thousands of these angels now appearing with bright lights and singing and offering security to God and to his people and to his son. And I know, again, we, we, we really dislike thinking of God in these terms, that, that he has an army. We don't like that. But he has an army. And his army is for us, and it's against sin. We need to understand, the, the army that God has, isn't against people. It's against sin. It's against unholiness. Now, we are the ones that are committing that sin and that unholiness. And so I understand the implication. But his problem is with the sin and the unholiness. And that's why he wants us to come to Jesus. And and verse 14 ends, it says, you know, glory to God in highest and peace on earth. To all those with whom he is well pleased. That little part, with whom he is well pleased, if you've ever gotten a Christmas card, you notice that that's usually left off. That verse, right? Glory to God and high on earth to everybody. That's it. Well, you haven't quoted the entire verse there. That, that, that last little part is really important. That last little part means, on whom God has shown his favor and goodwill... And it's not just everyone. He is pleased to give his favor and his grace and his mercy and his love and his goodwill, but it's for those who are in Christ. That's why every Sunday we stand up here and at some point tell you that you need to be in Christ. You need to come to Christ. This is, this is the essential part of the Christian faith that you need to come to Christ. And I know I hear That's not fair, not fair. God should give this peace to everybody, whether they've come to Christ or not. Not fair. I I would push back against that. I would say that what would be fair is for God to let every sinner perish. That's actually what would be fair. Some people get grace, some people get justice. But nothing is unfair about that. What would be fair is to just let everybody perish. My question for years has not been, why not them? But rather, why me? Why me? Why has he shown me his favor? That's really the proper question. God is sovereign, he knows what he's doing, he's God. And so for us to question, why not them? rather than saying, why me? That demonstrates our our inability to reconcile the fact that he's God and we're not. And then I want to end by talking about this word peace. So what does it mean when God says peace? What does that mean? Well, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a disruption, and that's probably a kind word to use. There was a disruption in all of these perfect relationships that had gone on prior to their sin, prior to Genesis 3, verse 6 and 7. Suddenly, there was a chasm in all of these relationships, not just in the relationship between us and God. Yes, that is there. We see that immediately. There's, there's a chasm between God because God comes, as he did every single day in the garden before the sin, to fellowship with Adam and Eve. And this is the first time they ever hid from him. So there was a break in their relationship between us and God. So, yes, broken our relationship between us and the creator God of this universe, the holy God of this universe. But there was also a break in our relationship with each other. Our relationship with each other is broken and strained and filled with distrust. And we have this thing called forgiveness that the Bible calls us to. Prior to there being sin in the world, there was no such thing as forgiveness because there was no need for forgiveness. And now we are called to forgiveness as we have been forgiven in Christ. There's this break, this disruption in our relationship with each other. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Immediately after taking the fruit, their eyes were open and they realized they were both naked and they started covering themselves and hiding themselves from each other. There was also a break in their relationship with themselves. You and I individually are divided against ourselves. There's all kinds of, you've heard me say um, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 our heart is wicked and deceptive above all things who can understand it our heart is divided against itself we can't even trust our own heart and and you see that you see that in Uh, Genesis 3 as well. They immediately begin to, both Adam and Eve begin to conjure stories about how they're not at fault for their own sin. And they come up with narratives that, that make them feel confident and better about themselves by pointing at others for their sin. The first sin was rebellion against the proper authority. The second sin, and it's the same thing with us, the second sin is blame shifting. The man says, the woman, you gave me, God. So he blames the woman and he blames God. And the woman, of course, blames Satan. But it's not just those three relationships. Our relationship with the creation is broken as well. We begin to treat the creation with disrespect. And we begin to literally kill the creation. If you read on in Genesis chapter 3, you find that what they did when they first realized they were naked, they covered themselves with fig leaves, which, by the way, if you've ever felt a fig leaf, that was really uncomfortable to do. And so God grace on them. Later on, after, he, uh, after God lists out the curses because of their sin, it says that God went and killed animals and clothed the man and woman with their skins, which were more comfortable, but the animals had to be killed. His his good creation now is under the curse of sin. We've broken our relationship with the creation as well. I know some of you are going to be like, Frank has become a raging environmentalist. Send me the emails. I get it. I understand. This is not a political statement. It's just a fact that we disrespect creation as well. We do. We do. That's war. War. So when God says that in Christ he has brought us peace, it's the inversion of the original sin that all of us live with. That's what it is. Original sin is war. Salvation in Christ is peace. Jesus is the prince of peace that is told of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Here's what is written in that chapter. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, here's the other thing. Subversive, again, just like Lord and Savior, this word peace is also a veiled reference to the Pax Romana of Augustus. So so everything in this gospel is pointing at Uh, Look, you, you think the emperor of Rome is the one with all the power. You're wrong. It's this little baby that was born in Bethlehem that has the power. You see how subversive this is? Let me ask you this question. Which do you want? Do you want government or do you want Jesus? Now, with Jesus, we happen to get both. The government shall be on his shoulder. But do you want human Government with all of its sin, or do you want to place your faith in Jesus? Let me ask you this. Let me ask it this way. Maybe this will be more clarifying. We all want peace, right? Could we agree that we all? That's a I think that's a pretty good idea to have, is that we would all like peace. Is politics going to get us peace? Has politics ever gotten us peace? How about ideologies? We keep coming up with these ideologies, it's going to fix everything, they don't work. How about science? Science has got to be the answer, that's going to provide us with peace. Corporations, they're going to provide, peace through Amazon, how's that working for us? Well, they deliver pretty well. Wokeness, cancel culture, social media influence government. Education, that's it, that's it. The most peaceful people in America have always been the best educated. Thank you. Two people noticed that I was being sarcastic. It's one of my <laughs> spiritual gifts. Okay. Or the rest of you are just like, well, I knew you were being sarcastic, it's just not that funny. Because <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> it's depressing. Okay, so you may say, well, Frank, what are you trying to get at here? Why? Why are you going through this? Why? What are you trying to... It's what I get after every single week here at Redemption Arcadia. We've all got idols. We've all got false gods hoping that somehow those idols and false gods are going to save us and fulfill us. I've got them too. We need to remember that false gods never fail to fail. They always fail us. What we need is Jesus... The birth of Jesus is the greatest thing to ever happen for us. And without this birth, there is no cross and there's no resurrection. He is Savior, Messiah, Lord, and we need him. And that's the message. That's always the message. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we stand in awe of what you've done for us in the birth of your son. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. There's still great mystery there, and we pray that you would reveal and continue to reveal the mystery of the gospel to us, but God, that you would also just point us to you, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would help us to understand that true grace That true mercy, true fairness actually comes from what you have done in Christ for us. Help us to celebrate that. We look forward to being able to sing about the birth of your son, the Savior, on Thursday night. God, I just pray that you would bless us now as we come to your table. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of Coming to the Lord's table, I guess metaphorically, because we're still using the uh, the kits. Those of you who are with us on YouTube, thank you for being with us this morning. Hope you have your elements. If you don't have the elements, uh, they're out in the in the lobby. You're more than welcome to go and grab them and come back in right now. It's no problem. This is kind of towards the end of the story when Jesus is sitting with his uh, disciples his best friends, even the one that's going to betray him. Jesus never backed down from, from engaging Judas with his love. Isn't that interesting, even though he knew? And so he creates this, this meal for us. He says, the, the bread is my body, broken for you. The juice, the wine, is the is my blood broken which is the new covenant poured out for you. And he invites us to this table to confess our sin, to claim that we've aligned our lives with him, that we embrace him, and to celebrate our salvation. So let's do that together now. for being with us this morning as we uh, worship. Uh, I, one of the interesting things about this story, which I'll mention again Thursday night, is um, you know, shepherds, their only, not their number one priority, but their only priority is their flock. And, and the shepherds leave the flock to be able to go see this baby. I think that's interesting. I, I, I think there's a picture there of how we need to try to prioritize our lives. I know it's not practical to leave the marketplace behind. We're not asking that. What we are saying, though, is to remember who Jesus is and to be able to prioritize him. And so as we go, this is the benediction that I would pray for us today, that as we go, as we go into our neighborhoods, as we go into the marketplace, as we go into our families, as we go wherever it is, that we would go knowing that Jesus is in front of us to lead us, that he's behind us to protect us and that he's at our side to offer us wisdom and guidance. That's our prayer for today. Amen. We'll see you Thursday night.